0: Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. (coughs) Catherine MacDonald is Head of Sustainable Investing at AXA Rosenberg Equities. Catherine has serious investment credentials with over 18 years with Rosenberg in senior roles across the firm, including in emerging markets, being the Head of Investments for Australia and New Zealand, and being the Global Director of Investment Strategy. Her appointment is a reflection of the importance Rosenberg assigns to environmental, social and governance factors, or ESG. Rather than just offering a sustainable investment option to its clients, Rosenberg applies ESG factors across all its portfolios, seeing sustainability not only as a means to augment return, but also to reduce risk. The firm believes that the winners of the future will be well-run companies that successfully adapt to tomorrow's challenges. Catherine holds a master's degree in international management, in addition to a bachelor's degree in economics. But as a highly creative thinker, Catherine's other great loves are art and music. Catherine, lovely to see you. Tell us a bit about your background and how that's fed into your current career here.
1: It's been a long and and winding road, I would say. I don't the career that I have now. I, I would love to say that it was premeditated, but it really has not been. And so, if I think back about you know, kind of how did I get to this point? Certainly, from a very early age, I was always in, interested in investing in economics, although certainly I wouldn't have called it that. It was only after I got to university and was really sort of formally exposed to economics that I thought, okay, this is, this is really what I want to do with my life.
0: And was it your family that... that- were talking about investment concepts in the home that gave you that interest?
1: Where did it come from? No, I'm, I'm, really I'm really not sure where it came from because I grew up in a family with um, psychologists and academics. So it was something, uh, I don't know where I got it, but, but I got it from somewhere. I, uh, interestingly too, I also grew up in a, a very small town in a rural part of the United States. In and which so part of America? In, in the state of Idaho which is in the north. And so as a young person, um, I was blind to what I now recognize as the beauty of Idaho and really just wanted to escape and go to the big city, you know. And so I think, you know, maybe from an early age, I had a, a romanticized notion of what investing meant or, or big city life meant. And so I was ambitious uh, to to get out of there. But, um, the you know, the other thing too that I think was an important early influence that is, has that is, remained dearly important to me over time is um, a commitment to uh, what we would now call environmentalism or environmental um, interests, including animal welfare, interests of indigenous peoples, You know things like that, which, again, difficult to put a name to when I was growing up. But over time and with a lot of study, that has come to be uh, not just important to me, Um, personally, but it's also now um, explicitly a part of what I look at for investments.
0: And so you studied economics at university and then went on to do an MBA. Did you know that investment management was where you wanted to end up?
1: No, I didn't. Right after I did the MBA, I went to uh, work for a company called Bara, which is a risk modeling company. And when I was an undergrad, I really liked statistics. And, you know, Bara took, you know, took a lot of those Statistical ideas that I really enjoyed, and you know kind of put them together into models that uh, that help people manage risk in their portfolios and so that was a great early early entry into the world of investing and the, and the world of risk management. And then from there, things naturally kind of migrated towards investment management.
0: And then you joined AXA in 1999 and you've been with the company ever since. So you've seen an enormous amount of change and fluctuation in investment markets over that period of time. And um, how has your role changed across the course of those 18 years that you've been with
1: the company? Yeah. Uh, when I started, my focus was on was on Uh, long, short, or market-neutral investing. Um, And that involves taking not only uh, long positions in stocks, but but also what we call short selling stocks. or
0: So when we talk about long positions, we mm-hmm. mean buying a company like Microsoft and holding it for the long term, expecting it to increase in value and That's collect right. dividends. And short selling would be saying,
1: this is Microsoft, we think it's overvalued, we're going to sell it. We borrow the shares temporarily, sell them, and then we're betting on the fact that we believe that the price is going to go down. And so that type of investing is a very um, nimble and attractive way of investing. I'll tell you, when I first um, started this uh, long short investing at Rosenberg, was really right at the height of the technology bubble, the first technology bubble. And so, we, we, you know, we're looking at the valuations on these companies that, you know, were trading at 300, 400 times earnings, or even no earnings, or companies that are making these arguments about it's not about earnings, it's about clicks per minute or eyeballs per minute or something, you know, and so we're like, these look like fabulous, fabulous short short side opportunities. And, you know, the lesson that the lesson that we learned at the time is that you can be right in air quotes, but uh, it might not pay off for a long time. And you have to have the wherewithal to stick with the position and importantly, get your clients to stick in there with you. And, you know, some did and ended up, you know, making a, a nice return and and some didn't. But it was a, a trial by fire um, in the first couple of years that I was at the firm.
0: So just to unpack that, I presume what happened is, let's say in, you know, 99, 2000, you were looking at stocks thinking they were grossly overvalued, taking a position to try and make money by yeah. short selling, yeah. and the market keeps moving up, keep, um, and so up. that stock keeps <clears throat> increasing in value, which means your short position gets is losing money every time. So it's sort of the it's like Alice in Wonderland. You, you, you're losing money because the stock's going up. It must be very emotionally draining to be in that situation where you can look at something and think this just doesn't make sense. What's happening in the market?
1: Yeah, and I think you know again being a b- Probably being a more junior person in the firm at the time, um, it, it was a little bit less draining for me because I looked to the people who were more senior at the time, and they were extraordinarily steadfast in their belief that, you know, this doesn't, this simply doesn't make sense from an economic perspective. Um, but again, you know, when you're on the front line to explain what you're doing, when you know that the, that your clients are then having to turn around themselves and explain why is it a good idea to stick with this. That's where the rubber really hits the road. And so, you know, again, it was a, um, it was a challenge, but I'm, I'm enormously grateful for it. And, and the thing I think that came out of that period more than anything was the, you know, very wise advice that, that we got at the time from one of the partners in the firm at the time who simply encouraged us to be very skeptical when somebody uses the argument, it's different this time. And his point to us was, it's rarely different this time, <laughs> and really pay attention to that. And so, in several of the market environments since, you know, that was ninety nine two thousand, when we had the big bursting of the bubble. In several environments since then, um, we've had this. It's different. It's different now. It's different this time. And and you know, we do we do need to acknowledge a, a, a probably a, a, a slow evolution of. Um, financial markets over time, but um, you know we have some core principles uh, that we believe in. You know, for example, there should be a relationship between uh, earnings and prices. This this is something that should hold. It doesn't hold every day, but over time, we should see a relationship between the economic success of a company and its earnings, and then how much people are willing to pay for that company. So, what is your role here at AXA Rosenberg now, and what does that entail? So, over the years, you know, as you've mentioned, I've had a, I've had a whole variety of roles, uh, including um, being head of investments for Australia and New Zealand. So, I was based in Sydney for a couple of years. Now, my focus is entirely on what we call sustainable investing, and when we talk about sustainable investing in the equity market, we're typically talking about integrating. Ideas that are around environmental, social, and governance. These are uh, concepts that we believe are important if we want to have a robust understanding of a company. These are also concepts that, that heretofore, have been pretty underrepresented in investing. And the Australian market is is a leader on this front, as, as you would well know. Um, as our the Nordics and other parts of Europe, but really the rest of the world is now um, you know playing a little bit of catch up in terms of its appreciation for how ESNG criteria can help us really have um, a better, more complete view of how much a company is worth, what a company's earnings prospects are, the strength of a company's brand, you know, things like that. This is all very important when we think to ourselves in the abstract. How much am I willing to pay for a share of this stock? And it's about making money. It's not just about trying to do
0: good in the world, is it? It's, it's part of investment management. Is, is that an appropriate way to look at it?
1: I think it's very appropriate. And our, you know, our motivation as a firm really is um, around this idea that, that environmental, social, and governance information is material economic information. So knowing, knowing some of this, might cause me to change uh, my belief as to what the fair value of the share price is. Certainly, um, from the perspective of our clients, from the perspective of our parent company, from the perspective of many of us as individuals, myself included, um, we are also very interested in this idea that people vote with their dollars about what's important. And we can choose to push capital in the directions that we think are important, not just as investors, but important for us as a society. The interesting thing
0: about Axel Rosenberg is that ESGs is not just something that's off to the side, that it's really integrated across all of the portfolios. Why is, why is that the case? And, and how do you stay across all of um, that for all of the portfolios that you manage here?
1: Yeah, so we're lucky because we are we are equity only investors, so we we only have to worry about one asset class to start with, which makes it nice. We're also very lucky that our parent company has been, you know, very very active in the responsible investing space for years, and so it it, it has been for years the case that we're able to um, leverage off of them, hear their ideas, hear what they're doing in the space, but. A couple of years ago, we made the decision to offer a fund in the Australian market that was fully ESG integrated. So it had not only what we think of as some um, exclusionary ideas, like we're not going to invest in tobacco or or landmines and things like that, um, but full ESG integration. In our minds, is more focused on I'm going to take everything that I know about a company along environmental, social, and governance dimensions and look for not only threats but also opportunities associated with how that company is positioning themselves in the market or how they're responding to technology or regulatory change. So I'm going to take all of that and include that in the way we pick stocks. This was over three years ago, and so we've had, um, right out of the gate, a limited but very positive experience with The kind of information that we introduced, the results in the portfolio, the the returns um, were strong in the portfolio. And so um, that live experience plus just um, a commitment and an increased interest on our part to really dig into this subject matter really kick-started our interest in, okay, let's integrate it more formally in more portfolios. And then... We had a, a short but I think important conversation about, do we want to offer then just a suite of ESG-integrated portfolios, or do we want to uh, you know weave it into everything we do across the board? And the decision was very quickly arrived at. If we think that this is our best investment idea, we need to roll this out into everything we do. And that is our belief. We believe that it's going to be additive to returns over time, and it's going to be um, additive or risk reducing in the in the risk space over time how that manifests itself is going to be a little bit different in every market a little bit different for every portfolio um, but again back to this idea that our uh, that our motivation within a portfolio construction context is really economic in nature we we are quite steadfast in our commitment um, to doing this and we think that it makes us better investors what's the most
0: Challenging part of your job.
1: <laughs> the most cha- the most challenging part of my job. I think that there's. Uh, I, I think I would not be alone. Not just within investment management, but but within any organization that is you know sort of global in nature and spans time zones. Uh, a big challenge of my job is simply organization and simply you know when we come to work um, in the morning here in California. London is open, they're at the end of their day, and so there are many people that I need to interact with in London and Paris, getting them on the phone, getting things sorted, you know, then you've got a few hours of of quiet and then, you know, towards the middle of your afternoon, Australia opens and then we start talking with them and then Singapore and Japan. So, um keeping track of what needs doing, keeping track of what's a sort of burning emergency versus what can wait, you know, I I think that that's that's always a challenge, um, and I think it's always a challenge to um, remain focused and have enough hours in the day to simply work on projects that are longer horizon projects. I think so much of the day can get really quickly consumed with answering one off emails or you know putting out fires here and there, and the and the challenge is really how do I uh, you know allocate a certain portion of the day to just doing the long horizon stuff, which is the really valuable stuff.
0: What techniques
1: do you use to be able to fit it all in? I use the technique that involves turning off email and turning off newsfeed. Um, I'm the type of person that if I see a blinking light in the corner of the screen, or if I see a new email come in, it's very difficult for me not to immediately click on that thing, no matter what it is to see, you know, so I think, just turning off email, turning off the Bloomberg scroll um, is enormously important. And then just saying to yourself, I'm, I am committed you know, for this day or this week, here's the reading that I want to get done, which I think is absolutely critical, and here's the writing that I want to get done. Whether that writing is for an external purpose or whether it's for me just trying to make notes and make sense of what it is that we're doing for documentation purposes. Those two things, for me at least, have to be done in an env- in an environment of relative quiet.
0: <laughs> Has there been a, a failure or setback in your career that, that you've really learned a lot from?
1: I can't think of one, but I can think of a setback theme, and that would be feeling very, very inspired and energized about something, putting it forward, and then having it meet with kind of a lackluster response, and this is something that happens to everyone. I think, I think I'm, not a, I'm not alone in this happening. But, but dealing with that type of setback, learning that that type of setback is not, um, is not personal and really, really taking that to heart and really thinking about, okay, maybe there still is something to this idea, but if I framed it differently or if I just tuck it in the back of my mind – because i know that at some point in the future i'll have an opportunity to use what it whatever is at the base of this or whatever drove this impulse initially i think that there's value there and i'm going to i'm going to try it again maybe in a slightly different context you know that that is something that has been helpful to me and i think just this willingness to to back yourself and to back your own ideas but also um an ability to recognize that okay this might be a good idea, but maybe now is not the right time or place. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this, and I'm going to try and trot it out again, maybe at some point in the future. Is there something that people f- are
0: surprised when they find out about you?
1: I can only imagine. I think, there, I think that, that there are many things that, are, that might be surprising. Many people who are closest to me know that something that I deeply, deeply value and spend much of my free time on is art and um the subject of art and art history art collecting is very near and dear to me and so i think that maybe in a in a different life or in a, in, a, in a former life i might have been an, a serious art collector or an art dealer but it's as much a a place of refuge for me as anything if i if i think about you know how do i recharge my batteries how do i feel like i've legitimately escaped the office or legitimately escaped the pressures of having to cook Thanksgiving dinner or whatever <laughs> awaits me later in the week, you know, that, that art is again, a very, a very personal thing and something that I have always had with me and I always will have with me um, independent of husband or children or parents or work situation. This is my personal thing. And I, and I, and I find it deeply rewarding. Are books like that for you too? Are there favorite books that you have? Books are very much like that, and having having studied literature, my uh, I I studied economics as an undergraduate, but I also studied Spanish, which means studying a lot of um, uh, Spanish literature, Latin American literature. Um, You know, certainly fiction is deeply important to me, and I still read a lot. I've always been a real reader. Uh, I would say, though, that in the last 10 or 15 years, I've really started reading nonfiction. Um, We were talking the other day about a book that um, several of us have read, which I think, which I can't recommend highly enough, uh, which has a a very funny title. It's called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And this is written by a neuroendocrinologist at Stanford who really talks about the effects of stress on the body that stress is a physical observable thing it's not just some amorphous there's no telling what it looks like or what it, you know we can we can measure it and we can think about it in a in a physical sense you're chemically different when you're under stress and i think that knowing that is a real source of empowerment if you think about then trying to do something about it and so for me i think we spend a lot of time um, thinking, well, how can, I, how can I de-stress in the abstract? I can go for a walk or I can meditate. But really thinking carefully about your body as a collection of chemicals that changes over time. This book was very, very helpful and accessible in that. And, you know, several of us have read it and, and give it high marks.
0: Any other books that you
1: really like and recommend? I feel compelled to recommend a finance book. There's a book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street um, that was written in the 70s. Uh, I'll go on record as saying this is this is a book that's often used in defense of what's called efficient market theory. We believe, I believe, that the market is not perfectly efficient, and so you know we would probably would disagree with some of the conclusions in the book, or at least find counterexamples. But the interesting thing about the book is that it's extremely accessible to people who are not. In the investment profession, and it has absolutely stood the test of time. So, originally written in, I think, 1973, we are still debating this stuff when we talk about index investing, ETFs, this idea of smart beta, factor investing. You know, th- this is all still very much with us. And so, based on that alone, I would recommend the book for anybody who, you know, r- uh, really wants an introduction to the language of investing and uh, and ideas that are still very much relevant today. For
0: you, over the course of your investing journey, what's been one of the best investments you've made?
1: I think, you know, it's tempting to give you a, a stock pick or a sector pick. Um, the best investment I have made is an investment in education. That sounds a little bit corny to say, but it's absolutely the truth. And by that, I mean not just... I went to university. I went to graduate school. But I think it's a a lifelong commitment that really, I uh, will give my parents credit for this, really started as a child with, I, with this idea of being interested in the world and pushing yourself to try and understand and try and explore, try and answer questions on your own. And so I think that being an educated person is more than just having a certificate from college. It's I'm a person that is actively engaged with my world, and that takes effort. At the end of the day, when you've done a hard day's work, you know most of us want to go home and just flop on the couch and uh, watch the Real Housewives or something. And I think it's important that we that we continue throughout our lives to push ourselves to do different and better and more on this front.
0: And what are the daily habits that you embrace to try and give you the energy that you need to be able to do a job that spans four or five different time zones and and all the other things that come with, um, you know, having a family and and being a lifelong learner?
1: I think that it's, you know, I touched on it a little bit, but this idea that um, to connect as often as possible with um, the thing that makes you, you and, for me and for many people that 's family that's friends, whether it 's long distance or in person, that kind of connection is is deeply important. but I will say also for me it 's art and reading and music. I ride horses and I find horseback riding a couple of times a week is something that it 's a physical activity that 's just difficult enough that you you've got to pay enough attention to it that you can't be thinking about what 's gone on at the office or what email do I have, or what bill do I need to pay you 've really got to be in the moment, and so for the couple of hours a week that i 'm at the barn, all of my attention is required in the moment, and I think that anything like that for people I know for some people it 's cooking um, you know for some people it 's simply being with their children, but it 's anything that really forces you to be engaged and present in the moment is going to serve as that Little bit of break that will be energizing enough for you that, to then the next day or later in the day to go back to the office and say, okay right i 'm here now, and I feel uh, you know like i 've got some energy and
0: finally, when you look forward to the future what are, what are you really excited about
1: I think it's a very exciting time to be an investor because I believe that there is a level of democratization with investing now that probably wasn't around, certainly 20 years ago, but even 10 years ago. I also believe that there is an attitude on the part of investors that we we should not expect a one size fits all solution. And so, uh, you know, what's what the best investment for me or what the best best path for me is might not be the same as what's best for somebody else. And so, I think that there's an openness towards thinking about everybody having a sort of a a unique utility function, if you will. Um, I also think that again, as the, as the sustainable investing person, it's enormously, um, gratifying and exciting to see more and more people again with this idea of voting with their dollars about what they think is important. And so, um, You know, whereas when I was a a younger person, maybe I felt a little bit alone sometimes expressing ideas about the environment or animals or things like that. You know, now I feel like I'm part of a great community of people, not just in, you know, isolated to my personal life, but even within the investment community. And so I think that that. That is for me personally very exciting and I think it's exciting for the industry as a whole.
0: Well, it's fantastic to um, share some time with you and thanks so much for the work that you're doing. Well, pleasure. Thank you very much. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes, or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.